Nostalgia is bad. Except for when it's not. On today's Byword, we dive into the stuff even we feel some nostalgia for. The Byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to a new episode of the Nerd By Word podcast. The only podcast old, uh, young enough to have absolutely invoke absolutely no nostalgic feelings in anybody. Um, I am Dave. I'm here with my buddy Chris. And nostalgia is the topic of du jour for today. Uh, but before we dive into all things that invoke nostalgia in us, it is time for... All right, Chris, what's new in the world of nerd news? All right, so I've documented this over the past few weeks, but I'm slowly but surely getting back into the world of professional wrestling. And we'll talk more about that in in today's big talk. But um, we made a lot of, um, we had a lot of commentary on Vince McMahon stepping down slash retiring and Triple H taking over as the head of creative. Um, And so far, what I've I've seen from that um, with, with the... The, the play out of SummerSlam and I've, I've watched a little bit of Raw and SmackDown here and there. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy with the direction they're going in. And um, another big uh, piece of news that came out recently is that NXT there for lack of a better term, their minor league brand um, that airs on Tuesday nights, which has already had a UK um, division, I guess is going to be uh, rebranding as NXT Europe. So I'm reading directly from the press release here from WWE.com. WWE announced today that the NXT brand will grow internationally with the creation of an all-new NXT Europe with the plan launch plan for 2023. This is a direct quote from Shawn Michaels, who is now the WWE Vice President of Talent Development Creative, the heartbreak kid himself. Quote, following the success of our live events and talent identification effort, efforts throughout all of Europe, we believe that this is the perfect time to expand NXT beyond the UK, end quote. Continuing the press release, launched in 2016, NXT UK has received critical acclaim and developed WWE main roster talent such as Rhea Ripley, Dewdrop, Gunther, and Butch. NXT Europe will reimagine the brand and its talent pipeline with a pan-European focus. Prior to the debut of NXT Europe, Worlds Collide, a premium live event featuring NXT and NXT UK superstars, will be presented live on Sunday, September 4th at 4 p.m. Eastern on Peacock in the United States and WWE Network everywhere else. That's the end of the press release. And I just think this is an incredibly smart decision, and we finally get some forward momentum with this brand. Um, and stop relying on the history and the legacy um, of of the WWE, and um, it, we're we're moving forward. And I can really see that coming through in the storylines of the past few weeks. Um, and so I'm excited to see where we go from this. And and, and I, anybody that knows me is that I enjoy global mindedness and cultures that are beyond my own and so i think this is incredibly smart and to draw in fans outside of u.s borders so i'm really really excited to see where they go with this and not only having triple h but people like Shawn michaels who are legends and know what it takes to be successful involved in the recruiting process i think it's just incredibly smart all around and maybe aew has given them the kick in the pants that they so desperately needed well, I for one certainly hope so. I really like this idea of expanding NXT. Uh, the few times that I dipped into, you know, what NXT is doing, I always found it very, very interesting. Um, you know, the thing is, too, WWE has had for many years kind of a tendency of not being a great place for new talent, not really putting their their efforts into developing great new talent. With, you know, a few exceptions, usually, you know, Vince McMahon's current new giant big guy that he wants to push because for some reason he had an obsession with just huge dudes. Um, And oftentimes, uh, a lot of really good talent kind of ended up getting just swept under the rug and really underused and underappreciated. Um, So I I hope that this is 
you know, a real step in the right direction and that they really start, you know, I, how, how many, you know, last matches does Ric Flair need, for example, you know, at some point, let, <laughs> let grandpa be grandpa yeah. and, and get some, you know, fresh blood in there because ultimately, I mean, that's, that's the future of, of professional wrestling is, you know, you, you can't stagnate, you can't rely on Hulk Hogan's fourth comeback. You know, you, you got to move forward and develop new stars. Um, and and I'm I'm hoping that this is you know what it seems to be. Uh, there have been a lot of press releases in the past about pushing for new talent and that kind of thing, and and not a whole lot materialized. So I mean I mean here's hoping you know with with Triple H now in sort of this this leadership role, maybe it's time for me to kind of dip my toe back in and see where things are. Um, I just I have my nostalgia goggles when it comes to the the attitude era and it's very hard for me to see mm-hmm. anything really living up to that. But I just I, I miss enjoying professional wrestling the way I used to. There was a time period there where I watched it, you know, religiously. Um and so I would I would love to to appreciate WWE's product again the way I used to. So here's hoping, man. Yeah, I'm going to press the pause button on this because we're going to dive right back in in a section of our Byword Big Talk. But Dave, we this this monstrosity is just inescapable at this point. Yeah, so we, we had uh, a lot of discussions over the last uh, couple of weeks about what's going on with, with Warner um, and their you know acquisition by Discovery. Uh, and now we have Warner Brothers, Discovery, Shamalama Ding Dong, and they're doing all sorts of cost-cutting measures and, and making some pretty... Um, questionable decisions, scrapping a nearly finished animated movie, uh, that Scooby-Doo sequel, um, scrapping the Batgirl movie. And the the fun just keeps coming, apparently, as HBO Max is now pulling uh, a lot of titles off of the streaming platform. Uh, 36 different titles, according to uh, a report by NPR. Um, a lot of the stuff that's going is, is you know, some original content, uh, there's, you know, um, the teen drama generation, uh, Sesame Street, uh, Sesame Street spinoff, uh, the not too late show with Elmo, um, uh, summer camp Island, an animated show. There's a whole bunch of animated shows that are just like disappearing that were specifically, uh, being created, uh, several shows and movies have been axed obviously. Um, and now they've removed something like 200 episodes of Sesame Street. Um, which is absolutely wild too. Um, There's just a massive list of stuff that has been, you know, now removed uh, from, uh, from HBO max. And so there's this, this sense, I think um, if you kind of dip your toe into fans of some of this content, that there is a real shift, a real change happening in not just HBO Max, but that this is an indicator of how the streaming world is changing in general. Um, and one of the big, you know, selling points of streaming, generally speaking, is that this stuff is going to be available forever. You know, you don't have to go buy out the Blu-rays and the DVDs. You just subscribe and you have access to this library. And now this stuff is just like gone. And there's no indicator if it's going to be, you know, streaming on the new streaming service whenever that is put together, or if this is just something that they've decided they just don't want to put out there, very much like what they did with the Batgirl movie. Um, and that is just that is just odd, you know. At the very least, early on in the streaming game, you know, any content uh, creator, uh, content owner, they would just dump anything that they could on streaming to basically bolster their numbers and say, look at all the titles we have streaming. And now to make that very, very conscious decision to take these titles and just let them disappear is, is very, very odd. And I'm not sure what the, the, the business background is or what they're trying to accomplish by, you know, getting rid of all this stuff. It's, it's a very, very odd decision in my book. What are your thoughts about this, Chris? Yeah, it's, it's extremely puzzling because you mentioned um, the advent of streaming and, and turning away from physical media. But I, I, I've seen reports that even, DVDs are being taken off of storefronts and everything for the same content. So even if you wanted to quickly shore up on some physical media of, of some of these shows, that's that's even not even an option either. Um, particularly um, Sesame Street was was hard to hear. Um, I remember, um, you know, the advent of 
HBO purchasing the rights to Sesame Street because it became too expensive to produce or something like that on on PBS. And so, you know, Sesame Street is a brand that has not only been formative for my children, but for me as, as well growing up. I remember going to Sesame Street Live in Sioux Falls where I grew up and and that was a yearly occurrence. And, and you know, I learned how to read, write, add, and subtract from Sesame Street. And now for it to be completely shelved like this in the name of corporate overthrows is just incredibly disheartening. And I did see that Sesame Street has directed a lot of fans um, to their YouTube page. So hopefully some of the content is going to remain on there. But it, it's just extremely disheartening to see whatever this completely puzzling business strategy is and in fairness uh this too uh this new story has a deeper connection to uh our byword big talk that uh you know we're going to get into here in just a second so much like you i think it's probably a good idea to put a pin in this right now and kind of pick up the, this particular thread in our big talk so folks that's uh that's it for nerd news so let's go ahead and take a quick break stick around though because that big talk is getting ready to start right now as we discuss the things that we feel nostalgic for. So stick around. All righty, nerds, welcome back. It's time for our byword. And as you know, Chris and I, and Chris probably more than me, uh, we like to rail against nostalgia. Um, Chris is a big fan of the Kylo Ren quote, let the past die. Move forward, you know, do some uh, uh, new uh, stuff. Uh, you forget the second part. Kill it if you have to. Yeah, yeah, that's what HBO Max seems to be doing right now. <laughs> um, so um, Chris is a very big fan of that quote, obviously, and and I too, uh, con- I'm concerned sometimes for you know the, what the ravages of nostalgia do to the entertainment industry. Um, but even we are not completely immune to nostalgia, and there are things that we feel nostalgic for as well. So in today's episode, we're going to dive into uh, three things, each of us from pop culture that we feel very nostalgic for. And Chris is going to kick us off uh, with, uh, I'm not quite sure how you can be nostalgic for this, Chris. It feels like it's never quite gone away. Explain yourself. Well, that's the beauty of it. Um, And I promise this is a new episode of the Byword, but I'm going to talk Ninja Turtles. I mean, um, one of of the the truly just mind-blowing things about the Turtles franchise is that it is seemingly ever present in society it is it is highly evolutionary it it, it's wild to see this brand evolve over time and adapt to the current you know cultural milieu of the time and and every iteration i've enjoyed at least to some extent even even the michael bay catastrophic films there are nuggets that i can point to and say that I enjoy the elevator scene from the first one is is pretty perfect and that's about it but I would have referred to those movies as different kinds of nuggets if you get my meaning but I guess that's just you know (laughs) (laughs) but um so I, I put this in the nostalgic camp because um the original animated series always pulls me back. I'm waiting for that to go streaming somewhere. I think they know what they have and they're trying to get you to buy that either digitally or physically. Um, but, but especially the first two live action films hold a special place in my heart. And I talked about secret of the who's as being one of those. That's just a guilty pleasure for me that I, I just put on, uh, in the background and it always makes me feel good. Um, but the first one as well. I mean, like I can always go back to those films and it's like chicken soup for my soul. They always make me happy. And every iteration of the turtles is, is, is it's almost like a microcosm of the stage I was at in my life. You know, the original animated series I watched every morning before I went to preschool as a kid. Um, the, the O three animated series. I think it was the one teenage mutant Ninja turtle. That one, I think, um, my younger sisters got into. And so that was something that I was able to share with them. And then the 2012 series is very, very special because that's the one that my kids found independently 
oddly enough, and we watched almost on a daily basis together. Um, and then, you know, we've talked until the cows come home about how wonderful the IDW comic book series is and um, everything that IDW is doing over there. Uh, Last Ronin has been released in hardcover now and it's completely sold out. It's a New York Times bestseller. I mean, like, so I, I totally get where you're coming from, Dave, because it's a never ending thing. It's a never ending story of the best kind. Um, but I'm specifically referencing the original animated series and those first two live action films. The third one is a hot mess, but it still has an enjoyable, enjoyable moments. But those first two live action films, especially really, it's like the Michael Corleone quote, uh, in Godfather three is like, every time you think you're out, they pull you back in. And that's what those first two films do for me. And see, it's funny because, you know, as, as we've already, you know, established TMNT never has gone back and arguably, um, the content that we're getting right now, particularly out of IDW, I don't think TMNT has ever been better yeah. qualitatively yep. speaking. You know, like the storytelling level is just in a whole nother in a whole nother stratosphere these days. I think something very similar is happening with uh, with Power Rangers over at Boom. I think their their Mighty Morphin line in particular, um, you know, touches that nostalgia and and feeds that nostalgia, sure, but also has kicked it up a notch as far as storytelling goes. And so it's arguable that TMNT, qualitatively speaking, has never been better than right now. And yet, and yet, <laughs> there is something special about that era, that blip in our lives and in, in everybody's lives to a certain extent, where TMNT seemed to really literally rule the world, where, you know, everybody was talking about TMNT, where it was on the forefront of pop culture, that cartoon Everybody was watching that cartoon, even if it was horribly renamed in uh, in Germany as Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, because ninjas be bad, yo, ninjas be bad. Um, yeah, um, and and you're right, you know, kind of tying into that whole era of turtles and how it just like was on the forefront of pop culture. Those first two movies, um, the first one in particular, I remember was just such a moment. Um, and yes, I, I will freely admit the second one got me to purchase a Vanilla Ice record, which is uh, scary <laughs> and, and shameful. But uh, I, I did have the Ninja Rap. Um, yeah, so th- there is something I think special, uh, even though the franchise never has completely gone away. There's something really special about the, the apex of popularity, a, f- a feeling that communal experience of being part of something that just seems to touch every kid's life. And you're a kid right in the middle of that. And just everybody's talking turtles and everybody wants turtles action figures and everybody can't wait for that movie to come out. That level of excitement and hype. It's very rare these days. It feels like, I guess, I, I don't know where there's so much content being produced or, or what exactly happened. But that that touchstone moment where everybody seems to be united, you know, and it's like, this is awesome. Seems very rare these days. Social media probably has poo-pooed that bit too, to some extent, because there always has to be at least one contrarian butthole that's like, this is stupid. But but man, you're right. The, the, the Ninja Turtles age where everybody was feeling it was something really special. I miss that. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting, too, uh, this just dawned on me, like, a lot of people ask me why Raphael is my favorite Ninja Turtle, um, and I, I've I really had to kind of, you know, I'm a big psychology person, is like, really sat with it over the years, and like, really is, why is that? And I think, now looking back on those first two films, I think Raphael was clearly the breakout star of those. He was the cool, edgy one, particularly in the first one. He had the attitude, and he was really given the spotlight in that first film. But it's also interesting to see which turtle is spotlighted. I don't know if it's like the bias perhaps of who the creator's favorite turtle is of the time, but um, Michelangelo and Donatello are heavily featured in the 2012 and they're, they're the breakout stars of, of the 12 animated series. But the, the current IDW comics have made Leonardo almost overthrow Raphael is my favorite one. And, and, you know, they've taken Leonardo who is usually cast aside as like, Oh, the boring yes, man. But um, you know, his, his story, especially in those first hundred issues where he's captured by the foot and brainwashed and comes back and it's, it's incredibly, incredibly well told. Um, But it's just fascinating. And you, and you brought to mind um, 
something that almost made my list is like the snacks that we used to have and the food that we used to have in the 90s. I immediately thought of um, the Ninja Turtle, like Chef Boyardee pasta that we used to have and all (laughs) that stuff. Like, man, we don't we, we, we truly were living in a golden age. And the one thing that almost made my list honorable mention, I really miss Surge. Surge soda. I, I miss you. I must have missed out on that completely having grown up in Germany. I don't remember Surge ever being a thing. Oh, it was horribly unhealthy, but it was awesome. <laughs> that's That sums up pretty much everything that's awesome. Horribly yeah. unhealthy. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Dave, your first uh, pick for a nostalgic exception, if you will, is something that is completely different from me. Yes. So, and I understand that too. And, and it, it, it's going to sound like I'm talking out of, you know, both sides of my, let's say mouth, um, because I'm such a huge proponent of, of digital comic books, um, for all the obvious reasons, you know, storage and, and, and convenience of having this entire library on your iPad or, or tablet, blah, 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 you know, all makes sense. But I think in light of what we're getting with this HBO max story, for example, I'm starting to reach the point where I don't think um, I don't think the streaming age is everything that it is advertised to be, um, particularly when it comes to movies and television shows. I've always been, you know, one that will use a streaming service like Netflix or something, but I've never purchased a movie digitally. And I remember there being maybe a year or two ago, some kind of story about like movie, some movies that had been purchased on Amazon Prime, suddenly people who, you know, quote unquote, owned the movie suddenly lost access to it, like it was just gone, and there was no getting it back. And that's just how it is. Um, And there is something really, um, I don't know, man, like, like unreliable about the streaming world. Um, It feels like at any moment, content can just vanish into the ether. Um, and that concerns me. It does because there are things that, you know, I think are worth preserving access to that, that are things that I you know want to share with my son one day, um, entertainment that meant something to me. And the idea that, that the accessibility to that can, can simply be taken away or disappear is, is a little weird because I mean, we're running a podcast here together, Chris, and uh, it's because of the love of of nerd culture. And imagine nerd culture slowly being erased. Imagine things just not existing or existing somewhere, but we do not have access to it. And that is, you know, when when you love pop culture and you love certain nerd media, that's really, it kind of hits you in the feels. I collected, uh, you know, VHS for a while, when I was younger, you know, and I switched over to DVDs and eventually Blu-rays. And I have a fairly good sized library of stuff of media that means something to me and that I want to maintain access to. Um, there for a while, for example, it was impossible to find any place to watch Farscape. It wasn't being rerun. It wasn't on any streaming service and there was no way to, to watch Farscape. I think the last time I checked, it was on Amazon prime uh, video to watch but what happens when that contract runs out? You know, well, I have my, I have my Farscape uh, uh, Blu-rays downstairs, and I'll be able to continue watching it no matter what happens to the streaming world. And yeah, I have a healthy dose of nostalgia for physical media. I liked um, always being able to, you know, pop in a VHS and record something off of off of TV, and then being able to watch it later. Um, I taped originally all the episodes of Gargoyles when I was living in Germany. And then, you know, when we were on break, you know, we were waiting for new episodes of the cartoon. I would pop in my VHS and I would rewatch episodes because I loved it so much. Um, And that even that, you know, like um, DVRs and recording live TV and stuff, all of that is sort of kind of faded away. Uh, DVRs are not very common anymore. It's all much more about, hey, it's streaming anyway, so we do not need to worry about recording something off of TV. You know, we do not need to worry about going and and necessarily buying a DVD or Blu-ray. And I always like that feeling, just like I like the feeling of, of buying a physical video game and having the cool manual that you can read on the car ride home, you know, when you finally get to pop in that game and you already read the manual cover to cover twice. There is something special about owning a physical cartridge of a game. There's something special about having a Blu-ray of a game, of a, of a movie. But more than anything, I think I'm reaching the point where I just want to be 
able to be sure that I have access to the things I like in the future. And I don't think streaming necessarily promises that. It did initially. This is about convenience. This is about access. One flat fee. You can watch all this stuff. Except when you can't. Except when, and, David, and that's, except when David Zaslav takes over. Exactly. And so that is why I continue to be nostalgic for the age of physical media. When you could buy something and literally own it, rather than having temporary access to it on a streaming service or even buying something digitally. And in the license agreement, it says, hey, we can revoke your access anytime, even though you quote unquote own it. Digitally, uh, I think we have to be very clear with ourselves. We own nothing digitally. When you buy video games, when you buy movies, when you buy comic books, you own diddly squat digitally. If the company you purchase from decides to revoke your access, they revoke your access. But if you buy physical then you always will have access to it. They, can, they cannot take your physical media away from you. And so, yeah, I, I love physical media, still do. And I, and I still purchase physical media, but I love the golden age of physical media. You know, I love being able to buy and walk into a Best Buy, for example, and there's like wall-to-wall movies. Walk into Best Buy these days, there's hardly any physical media anymore. Um, and I think, uh, I think we're going to reach a point where people are going to come to regret turning their back on physical media. I think it's, it's starting now with this HBO Max story. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to go further the way, the way this looks. Yeah, I'll, I'll fully admit that like the convenience of digital ownership has, has completely bitten me. And I'm, I'm the digital vampire, if you will. Because you know with the large household that I have, it's, it's much more convenient for me to make that Amazon purchase and have it digitally available so we can watch it on any number of devices and not have to worry about, hey, where's that DVD at? Or, you know, where's that Blu-ray? Um, and then, you know, having to bring it to another room or level of the house or anything like that. So it, it is extremely convenient. Um, I rest assured that I will kick in, you know, I, my dad raised me to kick up a fuss when it comes to customer service. So I typically am, am pretty successful in my complaint department there, but um, <laughs> uh, I usually wind up with a month's free subscription to something or other. But um, yeah, it, it's really wild um, to me because just in the last 10 years, right before I got my first teaching job, my only teaching job is I worked in the electronics department uh, at, at Walmart, and it's crazy to see within these last 10 years or so how vastly things have changed. I remember, you know, like the $5 DVD bin, um, you know, being like the old movies from the 80s and early 90s. Now that's the $5 Blu-ray bin. And they're they're throwing like recently released within the last year or two DVDs in the five dollar Blu-ray bin because they're desperate for people to buy physical media. It's it's crazy to see you walk into um, you walk into the electronic section of whatever department store um, and you'll see like four movies in one for like nine ninety seven. They're desperately trying to. Uh, get you to buy this digital media to the point where they're just jam packing. Some of them have eight different film feature films on the same disc because they are so desperate to sell it. And, and it's just crazy within the last five, 10 years, how we see technology change and change and change over and over again. I got nothing. I, I just, <laughs> I just really, I have, I have no comeback for that. I think it is sad. I think there is, there's a real ownership problem um, when it comes to digital, um, and that, that would need to be massively reformed for me to trust it. Um, and I think um, stuff like what HBO Max is doing right now is not going to make people flock back to physical because like you, they love the convenience of digital. What is much more likely to happen is that we're going to see a resurgence of uh, the piracy movement. And there's going, to be, there's going to be a lot of file sharing going on of stuff that you can't get anywhere else suddenly. I think that is pretty likely to happen, man. I do. I do think it's incredibly brave of you to reveal yourself as a doomsday prepper of physical media. So I'm proud of you for that. <laughs> doomsday prepper, dude. I, can, I I do just. I just don't want to live in a world where I can't watch Farscape anytime I want to. It's just that simple, man. <laughs> That's not a world I want to live in. <laughs> I'm still. I'm still shook by that puppet from the first episode. Ah, oh, dude. You just need to keep watching, man. That's a great, great, great show.
All right. So what is the next thing that you're still nostalgic for, Chris? I don't know if this is technically nerdy, but I, I think it is. But definitely pop culture. I'm a big James Bond fan. I know that um, the early ones are incredibly problematic, especially in the advent of the Me Too movement. And uh, old Jim got very handsy and very aggressive with his affections. But um, I still I still do enjoy even... Uh, you know, I think I think Amazon Prime currently has a lot of the 007 streaming. Uh, Pluto TV usually has a 007 channel that you can watch anytime. Um, but I'm I'm a big fan of the old school James Bond stuff. Um, the, he's he's just like the the essence of cool. The um, the the sexual assault aside, I think is just really fun to be this man of mystery. It inspired things like Austin Powers. Um, as a satire, and I think it's so culturally impactful, even 50 years later, um, that we're still making James Bond films. We're all hanging on pins and needles who the next James Bond is going to be. Um, I, I enjoy, like, all eras of James Bond, um, and I, I think I'll probably give the nod to Sean Connery um, as my favorite, but I don't really... I, I, haven't, I haven't seen any Timothy Dalton ones, I'll say that. But um, I, I don't think we've had a bad James Bond. Um, so I, I, I'm incredibly nostalgic for old school James Bond flicks. That's something I really struggle to relate to, my man. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I never was a big James Bond guy. I will freely admit, though, that I enjoyed several of the Daniel Craig movies. Yeah. Um, they're, they're solid action movies, and I really enjoyed those. And, and you know, reventing James Bond a little bit for a more, you know, modern audience i think worked incredibly well i always just felt like uh you know i was living in cheese cheese mosa land or something it was just very very cheesy when you have stuff like moonraker or something like that you know um so i I never quite related to james bond well until um until the craig movies except um golden eye on the n64 man yeah Uh, that, that that thing was my jam I did not care one way or another whether that's James Bond or not. That was a good game for the era, and I I loved it. Now there's a game that needs a really strong remake. I would I would love to play something like that again. Spoiler alert! But the fact that N64 did not make your list or retro gaming as a whole is shocking to me. Well, you know, I'm going to be completely honest. There are only so many times you can talk about the same thing. <coughs> X Men. Um. So. <laughs> Farsc- um, Farscape. <laughs> <laughs> so, in in fairness, I have I have spoken about retro gaming a lot, a lot, and it is uh it's pretty well known for anybody who's even listened to like an episode or two of the Byword that I'm a huge retro gamer and and adore old video games. So, um, I, I think that would just be like you know, kind of barking up the same tree repeatedly. I gotta you know, I gotta mix up my trees, man. Gotta get a new tree. All right. Speaking of completely off the uh, deep end, uh, I didn't take you for a mall rat. <laughs> Turns out. Uh, so to be completely honest, you know, growing up in Germany, the idea of the, the shopping mall wasn't really really a thing um, in any of the places that I lived in Germany. Uh, you had, you know, uh, pedestrian zones uh, where, you know, it was a big, big, wide cobble, you know, street that you know nobody can drive on and you have shops left and right and that's something that i experienced obviously in germany but the the whole american mall phenomenon was just not a thing um and then i came here as a teenager and yeah man i kind of i kind of fell in love with the mall uh in my teenage years there for a little while i I loved going to the mall Uh, everything under one roof um uh, the best malls are always the malls that had a movie theater in there you know so you go into the mall and you you eat something and maybe get some cookies at the Great American Cookie Place and swing in and watch a movie and then do some light shopping afterwards and just do some window shopping, talk to your teenage buddies. And it was just a great place to get dropped off before you got your driver's license and be left alone for the day with your friends or, or your date. There's, you know, everybody talks about this, like, you know, they're, they're monuments to consumerism. But as a as a guy who's like really like into community and stuff, I, I find that the decline of the American mall from its heyday in like the eighties and nineties, I think is really, really sad. I enjoyed the mall experience a great deal, but I also think that the mall has, um, 
uh, a natural sort of hub feel for for a community. You know, I mean, obviously, a, a mall like this provides jobs uh, to a community, which are always important. Uh, it, it's a centralized location for for offering goods and shopping. And, you know, the rise particularly of something like Amazon and that you can buy everything online is like, it's so very convenient, except, you know, you're getting rid of all of those local jobs. You, um, you, you don't have that, that physical interaction with the things that you're wanting to buy, you know. Uh, you buy a shirt online, 50-50 shot if it's going to fit or if the material is going to feel the way you want it to. Uh, you don't have really that problem. Uh, the idea of window shopping is kind of out. That's an incredibly fun experience, even for me. Um, instead, basically, you're sitting there on your phone, like swiping through pages and pages of goods. Uh, you really, online shopping is not very well designed for an equivalent of window shopping. You're usually going in, you're looking for something specific, and you're getting the heck back out. Um, I just think, like so much other things that have happened in recent years, there's a this kind of things are being depersonalized, you know? It's not about being around people, being face-to-face, -face, interacting with things and with people. It's all, you know, locked behind a screen these days. And the mall was just always such a communal experience. Um, I, had, I had great times at the mall before, you know, the local mall in our area declined. I, I spent a lot of time there as a teenager. It was, it was a great time for me. Um, and again, when you have a movie theater in there, it gets even better. I remember... One of my favorite things for a little while was midnight showings of movies, you know? I know they don't do those much anymore. You have still preview showings, but they're like 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock or something. But the 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 old, we're going to open the movie at midnight, and I'm standing in line for a midnight showing of Superman Returns of all things. And uh, there's a restaurant in the mall, like just a little a ways away from the... Uh, from the theater and there's like karaoke going on in there and i'm standing in this line for like an hour listening to some of the most god-awful singing the side of american idol and did not disturb my hype at all i was having a great time standing in line talking to friends you know hyping myself up for a new superman movie which ended up being decidedly mid but you know it, it was just a really really good time so yeah I'm, I'm nostalgic for the golden age of the mall man even if i only experienced the tail end of it myself yeah, this is of great personal interest to me as someone who hails from the land of 10,000 lakes, the great state of Minnesota, where we have literally the mall of America. So I used to go at least once a year when I was a kid. And, you know, it was it was a lot of fun because simply the the wide open uh, options that you had, um, you know, but even like in, in my teenage years in like going to the mall was like a lot of fun, even when I didn't have a single dime. I would just go sit and I would people watch. Um, I had this really fun game that I would do where I would narrate people's lives. It's almost like now we have the advent of TikTok like voiceovers. Yeah, that's what I would do. I would just sit and narrate people's lives and like people watch. <laughs> sit. I would sit um, in the food court and it, it was, it's how I would pass my weekends. Um, and I think um, particularly with the advent of, um, you know, online shopping, we have a lot of people racking up debt, credit card debt, um, simply because the ease of purchase to just add something to your cart with a click, and then you're five hundred dollars down the hole. Um, it, I think you know going and you know having to go and look at something, see the price tags there, seeing it face to face. I think it had a lot more of resonance, and um, yeah. As as convenient as online shopping is, I still have to discipline myself to use it sparingly because I know what a slippery slope it is. Dude, dude, money has become so abstract too. You know, when you're really just swiping a card and there's no more there's no more physical money, um, it all feels very abstract. I'm not I'm not surprised that people are racking up incredible debt because it just it, it doesn't feel even real compared to i know i'm sounding like a really old man right now but it doesn't feel entirely real compared to when you had to like you know whip out a 20 dollar bill and then get your change and you're like holy crap dude you know that's all i'm getting back like there, there was something really uh moderating regulating about about the the physicality of exchanging money that is completely out the window now i'm not surprised that that people struggle with with managing their money when money is basically 
you know, like HBO Max media. It's just like there one moment and gone the next. Now I'm envisioning you with like an old man money clip and licking your finger every time you uh, rifle through the bills. Oh my god, man. Don't. Please don't. Is there anything more than disgusting than people licking their fingers Why? before they Why touch something that, that they're going to give you? Why Ugh. do we do that? Oh, Why did that ever I'm, start? I don't know, but I'm I'm just sick to my stomach right now. I, I worked retail for a while, and there was nothing worse when somebody started licking their fingers and messing with money, and I'm like, oh man, can I have some gloves or something? This is gross, dude. Oh man. Oh god, I need a break. Ooh, sick to the stomach now. All right, Chris, final thing that you are uh, nostalgic for. And not surprisingly, I agree. Yeah, we teased it ever so slightly in our news <laughs> segment, but... We're so subtle. Yeah, as subtle as a gun. Um, but yeah, I love pro wrestling from yesteryear. I love the Attitude Era, era even even the Golden Era before that. Um Apparently, apparently, little man agrees with me. Um, yep. <laughs> he gave his best Ric Flair impression. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so, yeah, but here's the thing. It's, 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 it's very specific. I like watching old school matches and like particularly the Monday Night War documentary and stuff like that from the Attitude Era. What I don't want is, as you said, to pay $39.99 for a 70-year-old Ric Flair with a pacemaker fading, facing, uh, faking a heart attack in his quote-unquote last match. Um, that's, that's not interesting to me. Um, even as much as I've enjoyed some of AEW's content, I think it's a little leaning a little too strong into the nostalgia. No disrespect to Matt Hardy, but Matt Hardy in singles competition is not as appealing without Jeff. You know, I know Jeff has had some personal demons that he's had to work through and I hope that he's able to do so. But I think what appealed so much about the Hardy boys and the, everything from that era is that they were young and high flying and it's just not as appealing when they're in their mid forties. Um, but I do enjoy going back and, and remembering those things and being nostalgic about them. Um, but I also want to move forward. So I don't want to talk out of two sides of my mouth, but because I want to go back and, you know, revisit them. I like the grainy footage and all of that stuff. And it's fun to revisit that. But I also like the promise of something new. And so I'm hoping that we continue on this path because I do not need to trot out senior citizens um, for, you know, lackluster matches on a pay-per-view. So um, I like both. I like the new stuff. And I like to go back and revisit the classics. Now, see, the thing about uh, pro wrestling and my love for pro wrestling is that it was, you know, very much, I think, like yours, born out of the Attitude Era. And I think we can be honest about the Attitude Era in some ways. Uh, for one, the wrestling quality was overall really, really good. And because uh, the WWE was in competition with WCW at the time, it it really raised... Um, I, I guess everybody was trying really hard, you know, to captivate audiences. And one of the things that's happened, you know, these days is that although there's some competition now, it's still not to the level of the Monday Night Wars, for example. There's not this, you know, we're coming for you head to head, who's going to get the most viewers kind of thing, you know? They specifically because, they specifically go on different nights, it, attentionally, AEW does. So, yeah, you don't have that direct same night competition, yeah. Exactly. And so um, at the, I think... You know, for many years, there's been a sense that there was a lot less trying hard going on in WWE. But I think if we're completely honest with ourselves, and I know I try to be, um, there is something about the Attitude Era in how patent, patently offensive it was sometimes. And by modern standards, there was so much stuff in the Attitude Era that would like get social media just ablaze these days. I mean, there would be every about every in interest group that you can think of coming after the WWE at this point. Um, but that also fostered an atmosphere where you truly felt like anything could happen. Truly anything could happen and it was such must-see tv because you never knew how crazy it was going to get and a lot of the crazy stuff landed incredibly well i mean not everything was may young giving birth to a hand people okay we like to talk about the the creatively corrupt stuff during the attitude era but a lot of the 
anything go stuff worked and worked incredibly well and and drew people in you know uh, the the rise of stone cold as this anti-hero who's you know beating up his boss and flipping the middle finger at everybody and drinking beer on the job i mean that's that was pretty much not what you expected on television at that time um and so that anything goes mentality is i think what's missing most from the modern product and that's what i miss the most out of it you know it's it's the same thing with something like you know south park which after after 20 years i still appreciate even when an episode or a special or something doesn't land with me i appreciate that these guys are just willing to go anywhere and you never know what they're going to do it's completely unpredictable and sometimes it lands patently offensive and still hilarious you know and and i think that was something that the attitude era oftentimes did incredibly well patently ridiculous offensive by modern standards offensive even by the standards of the 90s and early 2000s and yet it worked and that anything goes anything can happen thing is what captivated so much um so when when you know wwe a few years ago went basically like quote unquote all ages you know for like you know families to sit together and watch it the 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 unpredictability went out the window with that and and that's what I think I missed the most from the Attitude Era. It's just like anything can happen, man. Anything. Yeah, they tackled this specifically perfectly. You mentioned Stone Cold. I mean, like I know that my my bio dad at the time like really really resonated with Stone Cold. He's he's a blue collar guy. Um, we're markedly different, <laughs> but I mean, like they said it on the documentary is like. Hey, have you ever hated your boss? Hey, have you ever wanted to give a double bird flip to your boss? Hey, you've ever wanted to drink beer at work and flip off your boss at the same time? Of course you have. Like, and so like, it's no surprise why this character was so relatable and so iconic for so many people, like middle America, especially. Um, And I think there's so many factors as to why, you know, the WWE has has lost its luster over the years. They're they're like the New York Yankees of professional wrestling. They have, you know, the capability of literally just buying their competition. That's what Vince McMahon did. And the Monday Night Wars were over because there was mismanagement on the WW or excuse me, the WCW side of things. But he just ended up just buying his competition. And so when you have that factor. It's like playing Madden or FIFA and you just trade for all of the 90 plus overall rated players and then all realistic competition is out the window. Um, and so now I'm I'm hoping for an evolution of this. And I think part of the reason that the Attitude Era was so successful is they had big name stars and they had all of this talent and they let go of the reins a little bit and they let them cook. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, the, this is your life one between the rock and mankind is the one that first comes to mind. And, and Vince was notoriously pissed off about how they went off the rails, but it was like the single largest rating in sports entertainment history because they just let these talented personas and individuals just go to work and do what they do best. And that's what I'm hoping to see now in the the era of some would call it cancel culture. Um, I call it accountability. I think that the best creatives evolve with the times and they don't have to resort to patently offensive, misogynistic, racist, racist stereotypes and uh, things of that nature. I think if you're really good at what you do, then that talent is going to shine through. and. I don't think that with Vince still having his hands on the reins in a chokehold was letting those people thrive. And so they terminated their contracts or they let them run out and went to AEW where if say nothing, I think the biggest draw about AEW is that people have creative freedom and that they can flex those creative muscles. You have someone like Chris Jericho, who basically carried the entire company of AEW on his back for a couple of years while they were setting it up. And, you know, they're getting folks from all around the world there and they're letting them be creative and having fun and letting loose. And and the, the main draw for WWE is that New York Yankees, Dallas Cowboys, 
um, you know, the EPL teams, what have you, those biggest global brands in sports, that's what they're relying on. And so eventually that's going to give way if you're not, you know, actively trying to improve over time. And so that's what I'm seeing from WWE over the last few weeks. And I need to see a lot more of. You know, this, this, I think, is would actually be a really fun episode. Um, you and I just sitting around talking about various gimmicks and storylines from the Attitude Era, whether they would fly, you know, these days, and is there a way to change them where they could fly? Because I think there are things that, um, you know, it, it, it really depends on the individual where your threshold is, you know, right. like, like, like racist stereotypes, for example, all of that crap's just got to go. Like, I have no yep. patience for that. But then you have somebody like Al Snow coming, coming to the, you know, to, to the ring with head, uh, you know, a, a, a women's mannequin head and talking to it like, like, I have total tolerance for the crazy guy. Uh, as a storyline tool, but I think there are plenty of people on social media who would absolutely lose it over over Al Snow and and read all sorts of stuff into that gimmick. And and I, w- I think it would be interesting for us to kind of analyze the Attitude Era a little bit through modern lens because there was stuff that was absolutely ridiculously, patently uh, stereotypical, racist, offensive stuff. But there was also stuff that just pushed the envelope, and I think even today could be a lot of fun. Um, Something like Al Snow, for example, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know, man. I, I don't know. It's it's a weird situation. It it you know the attitude era is very much of its time, um, but at the same time, I think it would be fun to have something like that again today. Absolutely, I'm down for it. It's been far too long since our attitude adjustment episode where we just look back. I I I'm 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 ready for a wrestling centric episode. I think uh, I think it's a date. Hey, um, okay, Dave. I'm really interested to dive into your final uh, topic. Uh, yeah, so I I just miss music television. Um, <laughs> that might sound actual odd, but... actual music television, not yes, yes, not ridiculousness reruns. Yes, I think like music videos, um, interviews with artists, um, you know, the, the heyday of MTV and VH1. Oh man, you know what I miss really pop-up video. Do you remember pop-up video? God, pop-up video was my jam, man. I loved pop-up video. You get the music video, you get the music and you get little factoids and funny little comments that pop up. I, I remember very fondly, uh, pop-up videos version of, um, Oh, that uh, she's like the wind, the Patrick Swayze song from uh, the Dirty Dancing soundtrack that he actually sang, and there was so much, so many good comments on there. You know, water imagery in three, two, one. Time to use the bathroom. You know, like there's so much water imagery in that video. It was, it was just great. That that sound that sound you hear is my mother still swooning. <laughs> <laughs> my my wife too. <laughs> um but yeah it's it's funny because obviously you know the joke has been for years now mtv doesn't actually play music vh1 has gone down the reality rabbit hole years ago but i remember with great fondness sort of the late the the latter years of my high school you know the kind of like when i first moved here in the early years of my college time when i would get up in the morning and the first thing i would put on would be vh1 or mtv and they would have like their video music countdown it's like their their top 20 and, you know, you get to listen to some new music and and you see the the music videos. And, you know, a lot of a lot of interesting directors have come up through music videos back in the day, you know. So you get some really cool stuff and experimental visuals. And how can you try to tell a neat story that goes along with the song, but different? And it, it, there was some really cool stuff there to see. And I would just sit there with my with my breakfast cereal and I'd be listening to music and checking out, you know, the the new music videos that have been released, you know. And yeah, we have YouTube now and you can still watch music videos if you want. But it's very, very different to, to you know, get on YouTube and try to watch a music video compared to, you know, you have VH1 or MTV like literally running their top 20, for example, or uh, even something as stupid as, as TRL was, you know, there was an interactive component there, a communal component with how, how it was consumed, pop-up video with the factoids, the behind the, behind the music documentaries. Dude, I, I sought out 
on YouTube just the other day to see if I could find the behind the music episode of Journey because it was it was pretty darn well done and I'm a big Journey fan and I just wanted to watch the behind the music of Journey again, you know, and just hearing all these you know, behind the scenes stories from the artists themselves about their rise and fall and their great comeback. You know, it's always the same, the same narrative that, that they used for that show, but there was something really cool about that and seeing basically music television, turning its back on, on music as their main hook. Dude, I miss those days. I miss those shows. I miss being able to, to watch those music videos, seeing the top 20s. I miss the pop-up video. I miss the behind the music. I'm, I even miss, you know, TRL as stupid as it was. I miss the communal experience of those channels and how they presented music and, and uh, you know, how we consumed music at that time. Um, I miss that, man. I'm very nostalgic for that time. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I miss, um, I even miss those crazy dating shows like Next and all those parental control, like all, all that stuff as I was in my high school and college years, like even those were fun, but it's now devolved into something to where when I cut the cord and stop buying cable or, or satellite, like probably a good seven or eight years ago, it wasn't a real great loss because there was no original stuff that was really pushing the boundaries and making me want to stay. Um, but yeah, I, I also, as a creative, like I loved like how people and bands and artists were willing to push boundaries when it came to music video creation. Um, the uh, making the video was another one where you saw them, you know, I remember the Mariah Carey heart yes. one was great. Yes. And like, so that was just like behind the scenes process of everything that goes into that was just so fascinating to me. And then just, like I said, uh, uh, people were willing to push the boundaries. The one that immediately comes to mind is Corn's Freak on a Leash and like the traveling bullet as it goes through all these things. And then, you know, a lot of people, they literally turn them into like miniature films, a lot of, a lot of uh, groups or artists and um, so much so that they would have like acting interludes between the music, um, like an intermission of sorts. So yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. I totally miss it. I miss TRL. I was, I was there for it. I mean, um, I'm a backstreet boy till I die. So I, I, I totally miss actual music television. All right. Now that we've waxed nostalgic, what are you nostalgic for? What nostalgia do you think is totally valid and everybody else is wrong for saying it's time to move on? Tell us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. And after this, our final break, you will get two new nerd commendations. So stick around. And we're back. And it's time once again for... Chris, I see that you're going down the video game rabbit hole. What have you got for us? Oh, man. I promise this is a new episode. I know I sing the praises of Xbox Game Pass almost on a weekly basis, but like maybe you'll finally get on the bandwagon with me. Um, it is the greatest value in gaming, plain and simple, beginning and end. It is amazing, and it introduces you to games and makes you fall in love with them for no additional cost. And the latest addition to Game Pass and the latest game that I have fallen head over heels in love with is none other than Far Cry 5. And um, no surprise that it's an Ubisoft game that I love. I hope they get their you-know-what together. Maybe they need to change hands of ownership, but I hope it's not an HBO Max situation because I love almost every game that Ubisoft puts out, and this is no exception. This is my first Far Cry game, except for Far Cry Primal, which was one of your first uh, nerd commendations that I really, really enjoyed, but this one even more so. I, it's so much fun to me. The long, long and the short of it is you're in the middle of Montana, uh, and this crazy doomsday cult has taken over the towns uh in that rural area and you have to liberate the townspeople of those areas and it's just so vast the 
possibilities that you have from a gameplay perspective, um, from your vehicles to your weaponry to um, your outfits and everything. And in, in true Ubisoft form, they have Ubisoft Club um, connections. So if you play other Ubisoft game, you unlock exclusive outfits and all that stuff. It's just a really, really fun game. The storyline is really well done. It's it's surprisingly fresh when it comes to an, a religious zealot. You know, you think like, oh, here's another tired trope of a religious zealot and everything, but it's actually refreshing, uh, refreshingly new. So I really, really am enjoying this. I know that I typically don't like to nerd commend something before I'm completely done with it, but I'm almost halfway through the main campaign. But it's incredibly enjoyable. It's 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 really great game, and um, it's it's almost tempted me. There's a publisher sale going on right now. I'm looking forward to playing Far Cry Six after this, and going back and playing Far Cry Four as well. So I really really enjoy this game. Yeah, I love this one a lot too. I had a great deal of fun. I think from a story perspective, it was one of the better Far Cries. I love the setup and everything. Um, and the gameplay is a lot of fun. And dude, wait till you hit the twist ending. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to being able to talk to you about that. Yeah, I, I like Far Cry 5 a lot. Um, I remember buying it on disc uh, on, at, on a, like a sale and I just really, really enjoyed it. Hey, that's that physical media again, right? Um, but I really, I really, really enjoyed this one, man. So I, I wholeheartedly second your nerd commendation here. All right. Speaking of nostalgia, Dave, you're going back to one of my picks, but I'm more than happy to revisit it. Yeah, so my problem, of course, is that I very, very rarely have time to watch television. <laughs> um, life is busy. Uh, and so I try to squeeze it in as I can. And finally, uh, I have been able to complete watching The Witcher Season 2. And holy smokes, dude, it's great. Um, I can't wait for three now if I ever get to watch that. Um, it was a real struggle to find the time to watch it. But, you know, even going through eight episodes, I, I was thrilled with this one. Um, I'm a huge Witcher fan, not from the video games, although those are fine, um, but from the book series and, and even more so, I think, the audiobooks, which are so well narrated. So I'm a big, big Witcher fan. Um, and I loved season one. I love what it did with like this non-linear storytelling and, and kind of messing with your mind with the timeline. Now, season two doesn't do that. They're a little more straightforward. I guess they heard the complaints of people who didn't enjoy that and decided to tell a more linear story um but man it works it clicks and i it, it leaves you excited for what comes next henry cavill is absolutely fantastic again i love the actress who plays yennefer uh her name escapes me right now uh the only complaint i may have had is that when you're reading the the stories uh, particularly i've you know predominantly i've read the short stories so far i'm, I'm getting ready to start the, the first novel um is that there's a lot of crossing of the paths between Geralt and Yennefer in the stories. And in the show, they seem to like to keep them apart as much as possible. In the first season, they spent a huge chunk of time apart. In this season, they didn't actually meet up until like the second to last episode or something. Um, and their chemistry and their interactions uh, in, in the show and in, in the books as well, I think, um, there's just a real high point. So I'm, I'm always kind of disappointed that they don't leave them together longer and let them play off of each other because it's very, very cool. Um, but the way the characters are left in the in, at the end of season two, I hope that that comes in season three. So I'm really excited that this is continuing on. I think they're filming season three right now. It's a great adaptation, I think, um, that gets the characters right. It's one of the few fantasy franchises that has really grabbed me by the throat and won't let me go. So, yeah, man, I love this. And uh, although I'm late to the game, if you haven't watched The Witcher season two or not any Witcher at all, uh, folks, you need to get on that. It's absolutely fabulous. Anya Chalotra, may her name forever live in infamy. Uh, she's the actress that portrays Yennefer, uh, and she is absolutely just out of this world. I, I'm right there with you. Um, also, shouts to Freya Allen, who played uh, Siri. She's fantastic as well in this, and one of my favorite interactions, one of my favorite relationships. You know I love found family. That is one of the tropes that I gobble up every time um but i'm right there with you on on the um Geralt and yennefer of it all i think they need i'm hoping season three that they spend more time together because their star-crossed lover romance in the novels is absolutely heartbreaking and one of the the most well-told 
romances in all of fiction. Um, also, you're right there with it on the audiobooks. I think it was one of your, I think it was your very first nerd commendation, if memory serves. Um, Peter Kenny as a narrator is just out of this world. The way he does voices, it's it's unmatched to the point where like every audiobook that I listen to is such a disappointment because it's not Peter Kenny narrating it. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's so ridiculously good. And um, I think I'm about three books into the series. It's been a while. I think I need to dive right back in. All righty, folks. That's it for another episode of the Nerd By Word podcast. If you like what you heard, get on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a, a like. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, you can find us on all the major podcasting platforms and, of course, our very own nifty website, nerdbyword.com. And hit us up on social media at Nerd by Word on Twitter and Instagram uh, or that Nerd Dave and that Nerd Chris, respectively, individually. But on our show pages, you can find our handy dandy Linktree website where you can go to any of our social media pages or uh, our own merchandising websites on Redbubble and TeePublic. Um, and as always, we thank you for your never ending support of the show. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.